Hey everyone, welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree, the greatest glass of the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind. I'm half of your hosts, Nicholas Lorimer, joined by the now recovered from COVID, or at least mostly recovered from COVID, Gabriel Krauser, who is uh, back with us, and that's why we missed a couple of episodes. Gabriel, how are you? Dude, I'm feeling fabulous. I, uh, I'm, I'm like a new man. I've been through an ordeal. I feel like the 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 Kosa fourteen year old who's come down from the mountain, and, and now can <laughs> can be affirmed as an adult. I have passed the initiation, and I have survived. And it's a great day for us. It's a very proud day. It's a very proud day for two crickets, uh, because Nicholas has just returned from being vaxxed. Yeah. No. And um, I mean, I've been using this joke a lot, so I'm going to use it here because I. It amuses me greatly. Uh, my Wi-Fi signal has improved magnificently. <laughs> and my download speeds are incredible. <laughs> and it's true. Um, when Nick started this call, it's never been clearer. It's amazing what the vaccine is already doing to the to the signal in his... My message to my parents vicinity. was, uh, I just got the Bill Gates microchip. Um, <laughs> and they said mazel tov. Mazel, mazel yeah, tov. Yeah, so anyway, um, looking forward to the side effects, and hopefully, I don't uh, get sick in the next week or so while I'm building up the dat dank immune response, as the kids say. Or you so, say. and 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 where did you get vaccinated? It sounds like you had a bit of a mission. Yeah, so um, I was a bit busy in the morning, and I didn't really want to wait in a big queue because I knew that you know a lot of all the I don't know what to call it A type personalities, the people who always get the high marks in school. They'd all be there at seven o'clock in the morning to make sure that they got vaxxed in time. And I was like, no, 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 that's for suckers. I'm going to do it my own way. So I went to the closest vaccination <laughs> is, point to me. This is often how a long story starts. <laughs> so I went to the closest vaccination point um, in uh, to, to my house and they said, no, well, we're out, we run out, sorry. Tough luck, come back on Monday. Because, of course, our wondrous government has decided that uh, it doesn't really have budget to pay people to be vaccinated on weekends. So mm. it just doesn't happen. It's very yeah, urgent. It's just not as urgent as a Sunday afternoon nap. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, so then I was like, hopefully the private sector can help me. So I drove around to a few pharmacies and asked them, do you guys have uh, good old vaccines for me? Levax. And no, they were they were also out, or they didn't have, or, or they just went to vaccination site, whatever. So I said, okay, that's fine. Um, I'm wearing my shirt backwards. Well, that's awkward. Anyway, <laughs> it all starts coming clear. Even the even the signal in your eyeballs, you can start seeing. Um, yeah. So then I was like, ah, oh, well, I'll have to either find somewhere tomorrow, because it's starting to get late in the day now, or maybe I should just go. You know. Uh, on Monday, whatever. And then my mom sent me a tweet that the Gauteng Department of Health had tweeted out saying that the Houghton Mosque uh, was uh, going to be open till late. I was like, oh, that sounds good. So drove all the way to Houghton, got to the Houghton Mosque, uh, and uh, there I was vaxxed in no time at all. It, I, I literally didn't have a queue. It was fantastic. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, Akbar, man. you got Akbar vexed. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think I think everyone working 
uh, at that particular site was actually a Muslim. Um, it wasn't just like they were using the venue. I think they were actually using. I love, I love when good things happen in Houghton because I like to remember that, uh, especially on a day like today. Um, Helen Sisman, uh, mm. who was the lone cricket in the thorn tree, uh, was elected from Houghton. Mm. It's a it's a remarkable suburb that put the first uh, true classical liberal in South African Parliament since Union. Yeah. It is also like i don't know in the world it's got the greatest like mix of of jews and muslims uh, right and a, and a lot of south africa's elite uh, wasn't uh, mandela's joburg house in Houghton? correct mm. uh so old ed's country old ed's club is in Houghton, which is where i learned to play soccer which is also a very important historical fact so anyway uh, <laughs> uh if i start uh yeah I start uh, babbling, uh, babbling about uh, how there is definitely no lizard men controlling the world. You know that the vaccine's done its job. Mm. Anyway, <laughs> that out of the way, uh, you wanted to talk about the IRR taking, or at least participating in taking the IEC and government to court over uh, their attempt to, what is it, completely destroy the edifice of our democratic system? Very good. Very well put. Yes. I, I mean, so just just by way of interruption to your your seamless segue, I was hoping that we might segue from uh, Nicholas's uh, mosque vaccination experience into a discussion about the tragedy in Afghanistan. Because oh, you oh. heard it here first on Two Crickets so, a month yeah. ago that this would happen. And... We want but to get into what it was actually worse. did happen. But it was yeah. worse than I thought it was, right? So I thought, you know, the Americans have spent 20 years and a lot of money giving the Afghan National Army some stuff. I'm sure maybe they could last for a while and maybe the situation can change. But it's becoming increasingly apparent that a lot of the, uh, that it wasn't just on state capacity that the Americans had been pouring money into the sand like water. Uh, it turns out that they had decided that they were going to set up the Afghan National Army without equipping them with logistics operations properly or properly organizing their air force. And uh, when yeah. they pulled so out... So as soon as they pulled uh, out, the whole right. thing and, and to make it and worse... The Taliban got the sponsored effectively by the American government for the second time with billions of dollars right. worth of material. But 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 it's, it's even worse than that because uh, one of the things supporting the Afghan government military forces was a large amount of... Americans who were private contractors, right? So the Afghan government was paying Americans to fix their trucks and carry things and drive things. And, and they didn't even expertise. fix the stuff before they left. Well, Biden said, no, all of those contacts, contracts have to be canceled because we don't want any Americans in the country because if there's private contractors, maybe we'll have to go and rescue them or something. So all of those were canceled. <clears throat> so it wasn't just the army going. It was all these, you know, private security people and uh, technical experts and stuff and apparently the afghan government didn't realize that they were going to lose literally all their support they thought they were just going to lose the troops they didn't realize they were also going to lose logistics and air, air power um and so with that sudden change in affairs there appears to have been some kind of panic the uh the taliban made some advances and the afghan national uh, army forces uh basically lost morale. And uh, as often happens, if you study military history, once some people begin to panic, it spreads like wildfire. And before you knew it, the whole army had pretty much collapsed. Well, not the yeah. whole army, because uh, some some of the commando units have now retreated to the old haunt of the 
so-called Northern Alliance, which is a, a, an, an anti-Taliban organization from before the American invasion. And yep. they are setting up to begin resistance against the Taliban round two, All led by the again. deputy president of Afghanistan. Yeah, so the, there are still some brave Afghans continuing to resist. They've also been um, female MPs who are now, I guess, out of a job, who have declared that they will stay in Afghanistan. And uh, basically the, the Taliban had to come and get them. Uh, and there have also been people taking to the streets in Afghanistan, protesting against the Taliban rulers and demanding that their relatives be allowed to work uh, because the Taliban, despite what they've just said in some press conferences, are already throwing women out of the workplace, out of schools and cutting people's heads off in the yeah. street and beating people no, to it's death. Savage. It's awful. It's yeah. awful. So I think that um, there are really interesting explorations to be had about you know passing apart the execution of the pullout uh that nicholas has spoken to uh versus the principle of the pullout uh and and whether both of them whether it would inevitably be bad or whether there was a better way to do this whether it would have been better to stay and we touched on some of that before and i'd like to get into some of that right now but i just think that we have to leave it at that and move on to uh, the urgent and very interesting development of the Institute of Race Relations going to the Constitutional Court, going to court for the first time, I think, since the HIV issue. Um, certainly, it's for the second time. I just realized it had been so long. I thought we'd since been No, we have been to Parliament. Um, we have represented the South African people's best interest, we believe, and certainly the the, the best estimate of what most South Africans think um, in the court of public opinion uh, on a daily basis, effectively. And we have made a lot of noise about going to court against expropriation without compensation, but that date has not yet arrived. So our part has been kept dry. This is a, an unusual thing for us to do. Um, one is a little bit pleased that, that uh, after, after the hard work that we put in, that we were admitted um, the Helen Sisman Foundation was rejected. Uh, in other words, it, it applied to go to court. And Helen Sisman Foundation doesn't do much. It's the, the one thing it's supposed to do well is go to court on the rare occasions that it does. In this instance, it was rejected. What, and we what was the accepted. problem? They, I, I, I think part of the problem was that the relief that they sought was kind of weird um and that the arguments that they made were unoriginal seems to be a combination uh, of that okay uh, but so let's get into the big stuff i've been watching the court proceedings uh all day it is a sort of a 10-hour day and you had let's say four or five parties arguing for postponement and then uh several parties arguing against postponement so that was basically the IEC plus government plus the IFP for some reason. So the government hardly actually made an argument, which is quite interesting. That's interesting, yeah. It, so the government was there only insofar as the Kochta minister and Kosa Zanat Lumini Zuma was there. And I have to clarify this. I think it's because it made me very angry and I haven't had a chance to go over my notes yet properly. But I think that the ICE, that the that the ministers the, the, the ministers' representation was basically 
we've got nothing to add. We'll do whatever the court says, hmm. right? So we really, we think the IEC is right. You should listen to <clears> them. But like, whatever you want to do, we'll do that. Uh, we don't want to get too much involved. We we defer to your power. There was one issue that the advocate felt he had to raise, which was that the good faith of the minister was called into question, that the DA and other parties that opposed the postponement had basically made the allegation that the that Glamini Zuma and the IEC connived to proclaim the election before the voter registration that had been promised had actually been allowed to happen. And once Glamini Zuma proclaims the election, the registrations can't happen. Right. And that means and that hundreds of thousands of people that would have registered now are deprived of a chance to register. And that means independent of COVID, the IEC has an argument to say these elections can't be free and fair. In fact, that's a correct argument. In my view, these elections cannot be free and fair unless those people are allowed uh, to register. To register. And right. so on this And those basis, people include me the, because I've actually <laughs> I haven't registered since I moved. Yeah. Exactly. So on this basis, the IEC and Lamini Zuma connived to artificially create an impossibility problem where it's impossible for the elections to go forward as scheduled and then to go and appeal to the court and say, look, it's impossible. Please, can you help us out? And the relief that we seek is a postponement. Yeah. So that allegation was made. We, right. I made that allegation. The institute, yeah, you, you did on, I, the, on the Daily French show. I made it immediately. I was made it through a press statement the moment. That and I agree I was, with, you, with you completely. <laughs> I was the first in the country to make this allegation. And happily, some senior advocates uh, and uh, respondents in uh, provincial government um, saw the same thing that I saw and swore to it in effect, okay, in substance, not necessarily in form. This is the substance of the allegation as it was interpreted by the minister. Right. And this was the comeback. The minister's representative said, look, this can't be the case. It can't be the case that the minister connived with the IEC to create this artificial um, problem of disenfranchising voters because the minister was told by the IEC's legal counsel before the proclamation that no proclamation was necessary for the IEC to go court to court well then why did yeah, but that's completely it? mad firstly yeah I because mean, what? that's not the <laughs> allegation the allegation is whatever for whatever reason you guys got together you should have allowed the registration weekend to go ahead first but what's even more mad about this is that the minister Tlamini Zuma on video said to the press and I'm going to find this clip she said Look, guys, this is why I've made the proclamation before registration weekend was over. So that the IEC can take it to court. That's what the IEC needs to do to take it to court. And not only did she say it to the press, the press repeated it. So <laughs> what has happened is that either the counsel of the minister has lied to the constitutional court or the minister has lied to her counsel and through her counsel to the court. As far as I can tell, there's an interesting case for perjury to be made here. And we will explore that further. It is not substantial. It, is, it, it doesn't get to the main substance of the case. It is substantial right. in the sense that it gets to 
whether the bona fide uh, pretense can be sustained, that the IEC and the minister are acting in good faith. And in this sense, it's the most substantial thing that I can really pick out because there's two ways of looking at this whole case. One way is just as a as a bone ordinary South African, the kind of person that I that I see when I go walking around in the uh, it's not even a park, just like a strip of grass outside, and there are people catching a nap, domestic workers, gardeners, and I have a chat with them about the election issue. What does it come down to? What's the meat and potatoes? People are afraid that government is so rubbish that so much frustration has been expressed through the riots, against the lockdowns, against the incompetence, the sewerage opening up, the potholes right next to the constitutional court and everywhere else in between, that people know the ANC's days are numbered, that it could cross the 50% threshold, drop below 50% in this election, that the psychological impact of that would, that it would change people's mind. Those loyalists, the, the people who keep voting for the ANC might think it's not going to be forever. And that to avoid right. that situation, this election, every move is being made to postpone it. That is the kind of man on the street worry about what's going on here. And the legal argument is completely different. The rule of the court is basically, unless you have hard evidence, unless you have direct evidence, you can't, it, it's not enough to just say there's this motive. You've kind of got to have direct evidence of some malfeasance if you want to make the allegation before the court that the IEC is deliberately screwing this up or that the minister is deliberately screwing this up. So everyone's pretense is good faith, bona fide cooperation, and that no one's a knave. If anything goes wrong, it's because they're foolish. Right. Now, this might be an instance worth drawing to the court's attention to show that bona fides, at least as far as the minister's concerned, are, don't, are, just don't hold Unjustified. water. Right, um, but we'll get okay. But that's but 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 that will be for the IRR to explore at a future juncture. Right now, the main headlines of the case, I think, to observe, are the three arguments that the court has given. Basically, the first argument was that South Africa is an s-hole country that cannot have elections, as Donald Trump would say. It's just too much of it's just too much of a shithole. It's too cuck to have elections, and that argument came from the ANC, the IFP, the the EFF, and the and the EC. And by the way, I'm never calling it the IEC again because Constitutional Court justices called it the EC. So I'm overriding those editors who have insisted I call it the IEC. I'm calling it the EC. No, I is a fabrication and a hangover from the apartheid yeah, era. Yeah, so 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 I I agree. You're technically correct, but EC just sounds so stupid to say. Yeah, it is stupid. It's it's a stupid thing. The Electoral Commission is stupid. So <laughs> their argument. So the ANC's argument was we we couldn't. This country is so useless that that we can't protect our party constitution unless we break the, the main constitution, because our party constitution requires certain methods for electing and nominating candidates, and we haven't been able to sustain that. And so we should rather break the whole constitution than for the ANC to find a way to get its candidate list nomination process effectively. So they did actually bring that up in court? Yes. They said, <laughs> please extend the election, basically because we can't pay our staff.
Okay. The EFF said, please break the constitutional deadline because in order to facilitate candidate nominations, you either need data or transport money. And not all of our members have data or transport money. So because the party's budget is insufficient for it to hold a meeting, the country's elections must be taken away. Yeah, okay. that's also... That's also the, the best thing about these arguments... It, so they're not true on the facts, right? But the best thing about these right. arguments is how they were refuted. They were refuted, I expect, to the court's satisfaction by ATM. The, the South Africa. Wait, really? Not you mean the Zuma Puppet Party? The Zuma Puppet Party joined against the postponement alongside the Institute of Race Relations and the DA. And they said that they have their ward in every ward in the country. They have a candidate ready to lead, vetted, nominated, ratified, ready to go. If the ATM, which has only been around for, I, I think, six and a half minutes, and as a budget, right. surely much as, smaller than the EFF yeah. and the ANC, and is completely representative at the symbolic so level. Right? They keep saying is, DA is the fancy rich party. The ATM is like the poorest of poor party. Okay, it's the it's more right. communist and like okay, it's more man of the people, salt of the earth. Yeah, I I I wonder whether that's entirely true as well. Um, <laughs> but that is quite fascinating. I know the DA. It's does a great gamble. Yeah. I know, I know the DA definitely does have all of its candidates and stuff sorted out, but actually they are, um, I believe, that, that they are not releasing the lists because they don't want the political fallout from releasing those lists because people who aren't high up on those lists will might defect, jump ship, flip out. So they're waiting for the right time to do that. They've got a little bit of time. They've got some time. So, right. so, so the candidate list argument I thought was very nicely dealt with by the ATM. Uh, no, but hold on. I, I just have a question. Like, why? Why the? Why is the ATM doing this? And why? I think this is what I think. Franz Krenier would be unsurprised. Um, Franz Krenier has talked a long time about a kind of black nationalist um, gap, a sort of right wing, a party that 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 is overtly committed to Team Black, rather than full on non racialism, uh, but at the same time uh, has a has a more is more ready to say things like "no pain, no gain, buddy," uh, <laughs> and and toughen up and let's work hard rather than just redistribute and share things around. And I think that's the space that Herman Mashaba has been trying to step into. I think that's a space, in some senses. So that... I think that's very charitable towards the ideological coherence of the ATM. I would wager rather that no, apparently. To, to, to finish the thought, the thought is that this vacuum exists, not that the ATM is the is the right party to fill the vacuum or that it even will continue to try to fill the vacuum. But insofar as that vacuum exists and insofar as the ATM needs uh, to gain credibility um, in, in what and attention in whatever way it can, I think this is a perfect fit, right? They get to step up and say, look, we're poorer, younger, newer, fresher, in every way, the odds are against us. But we, unlike the ANC and the EFF, are ready to face this election. We embrace the chance to face this election. This is a change election, and we're a change party. And the fact that 
the the only complaint against us is going to be something like, oh, but what about hurting people's lives and feelings? Uh, that kind of the soft care argument um, is one that I think they at the moment are ready to 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 lean against, and and that doesn't seem surprising based on what I picked up on their campaign in 2019. They seemed like they wanted to be a tough party rather than a sensitive party. Yes, well, that's definitely true. Um, I don't know. I I wouldn't be surprised if it's a very deliberate strategy to try and cause as much chaos inside the ANC as possible. Yeah. So the next uh, shit asshole argument coming out of the, the the worst one I thought was came from the IF, IFP's representative, and I don't actually believe that the IFP would have given this instruction. I believe that the IFP's representative was speaking and thinking extemporaneously and well, answered is, in a way the, that would not reflect the IFP. But so the IFP's the representative the IFP. was... No, it's not. It's like, it's like, you, no, I haven't no, even no, said what I've said yet. It's, it's, Let me it's, say it's, what all right, I'm go going ahead, to go. say. Uh, people's lawyers can misrepresent them no matter how good they are. The IFP's uh, advocate was asked, would there not be some mitigation of risk by Justice Theron? Would there not be some mitigation of risk if the queues uh, outside voting stations were required to comport with common sense measures, social distancing, masking, hand sanitizing. And the advocate said, no, there would be no mitigation. (laughs) That is not an instruction that she got from the IFP. That is her not thinking very clearly. And on what basis did she say... Let me finish. On what basis did she say no mitigation? She said no mitigation on the basis that people break the law and there's COVID fatigue. Now, I'm sorry, dude. The IFP are not the party of like, ah, oh, people are lawless. You, you mustn't expect that they'll stick to the rules. The IFP is the party of rules is rules. And people must stick to the rules. They, no, they, is, they were let is, down by the council there. This is what I'm trying to say is, yes, uh, I think Butelezi definitely is that guy. And the IFP, at least on its good days, is that party. But they're like a sort of swirling tornado of chaos. You really, really never know what you're going to get from them. Sometimes they're fantastic, and sometimes they're just, well, yeah. this is a good example. <laughs> yeah. so I, think they've, I think they've been let down by their senior counsel. Um, that was definitely the worst asshole argument. South Africa is such an asshole that people just are going to break the law so don't have an election because it's not going to work anyway. Yeah, well, then why have the rules? I mean... Why have the rules in the first place? Can we we just uh, be honest and have a dictator? You know, have a... uh, Okay. So the the SL arguments were we're, we're too poor to have candidate nominations. The IEC's SL argument was we are too poor to run an election. Every other country can run an election during COVID. But our problem is that we're too poor. And I think, in a way, the sequence of events was very interesting because the IEC <laughs> Did starts, they really say that? Yes. Jeremy Gauntlet noticed. Jeremy Gauntlet argued against, and he came just before us, but right towards the very end in terms of the, the opposition side. And, uh, and, and this was much more cool. The first op- opponents came out very much guns blazing. And Gauntlet was was ready to make more accommodations with the court, um, but at the same time kind of devastate the other side's argument. And he pointed out two shifts that the IEC had made. 
um, between their original affidavit, their original sort of case to the court, and then how they responded to questions and so on. And the first thing that he noticed is that they originally had to make the case that it would be absolutely impossible for them to host the election on October 27th or before the constitutional deadline. But then through the questions that they'd been asked by co-respondents and intervening parties and, and the court itself, on the hearing day today, they had to shift their position from one of absolute impossibility to one of relative impossibility just to say it's it's sort of relatively impossible um and it, and once you start saying it's relatively impossible what do you mean well we mean that it's like expensive and we're not sure that we have enough money and then the court said i mean the the court went hard after the iec and was like how can you say that are you saying that budget should be uh you know the impossibility doctrine where it does apply and we're not sure that we can apply the impossibility doctrine to this case. By the way, the impossibility doctrine just says if something can't happen, then the law then the court can't insist that it happens. So right. if 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 it's really been extinguished, if a house I've paid you money to rent out a house, so we've got a contract, I've got to be able to stay in your house. But the house burns down so that there's no two bricks on yeah, top like, of each other. Okay, so then the you can't enforce the contract. If someone is supposed to appear before court in Johannesburg but they're actually in jail in Peter Marinsburg. And then they don't appear on, on the court hearing. The court can't say, well, you're in contempt of court because you didn't show up at the hearing. Because it is impossible to show up at the hearing. Because, Or if you were literally in a coma in like Washington, D.C., then it's impossible. It's properly impossible. But to say you lack the budget, it's not that's not how the impossibility doctrine works. <laughs> what else? I mean, if I may ask, yeah. what else is the IEC spending its money on? Like this is, if it's a, if you're prioritizing, right, about what to spend your money on and you're the electoral commission, presumably you should begin with hosting the damn elections. <laughs> and then if you have time, if you have something left over, you can spend it on the other things. There is no other things. That's the thing. <laughs> That's the things you have to do. And anyway, so the court the court dismissed that. But this is the kind of argument that is presented to the court. Look, this is impossible to do. Why is it impossible to do? Because South Africa is just a cuck country. Because the people won't stick to the rules. Because the parties are too poor to uh, have data uh, or too incompetent to have meetings with 100 people or less uh, that nominate candidates. Uh, because they don't know how to canvas and advertise themselves uh, in the state of a, a pandemic um, and because the IEC doesn't have the money to execute an election and also because the IEC doesn't know how to manage queues and, and the counter argument here was raised by uh, Michelle LaRue very nicely uh, she said 15 million people voted in the 2016 national municipal election 18 million people every single month queue for SASA grants. So literally every month we have more people queuing up than we're going to have on election day. Which gives you a sense of how low voter turnout is. Nick, you've muted yourself. 
Sorry, it does give you a, a sense of how awful, what an awful state the country is in. But So it is an awful country. It is an asshole country, right? The question is, is it such an asshole country that we can't vote? Well, and it was amazing no. <laughs> that that was the argument being made by the ANC, the EFF, and the IFP, and the EC. They were all saying, look, you guys think this country's bad. The IRR, the DA, you guys complain so much. You have no idea how bad it is. It's That's so bad worse. that we're not even a democracy. <laughs> so that was their argument, and it's a shocker. Then the, the, the main yeah. argument against it was broken down into two arms, and it was quite repetitive, and their arguments were quite repetitive. And the two arms were basically the facts. Is it a fact that we can't hold the election safely? And then the law. Is there a legal mechanism to allow... Uh, the deadline to be broken. If it turns out that the facts say this thing really is impossible to hold. And on the facts, I mean, it's just perfectly clear. And and uh, and Gauntlet, again, used um, Acting Chief Justice Zondo's own opening words to make the point that we must judge this thing in context. And the context is pandemic which means international disease problem. Lots of countries, in fact, all countries are dealing with this problem. And someone pointed out, I think it was Michelle LaRue, that no example could be brought forward by the IEC or any of the parties recommending that the constitution be broken. No example could be provided of any other country where a court has decided to postpone an election beyond a deadline. So, like a hundred countries have had their elections during the pandemic, national elections, national referendums, big, big, big elections, not just little by-elections. Those countries that have postponed have all postponed through parliament, which is the only mechanism available right. on the mainstream counter-argument. The, the mechanism available, has, yeah. Is, is the legislative, uh, the legislature is the source of power for the rest of the the structure of the country. Yeah. And so it is the only the only organ that can do this stuff. It's not some because it represents the largest group of people in the country. Exactly right. And in, in our country. Yeah. So and and it's 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 worth just so they, they talked a little bit about the uh, they didn't get into this, but we've talked about this on this podcast before. The difference between um a country like America and a country like the UK. So in the UK, Parliament is sovereign. Parliament really is the source of all power and it is supreme. And the, the Constitutional Court of the Supreme Court of the UK is only really able to hold back Parliament insofar as it can refer to other parts of Parliament. Previous findings or judgments or rules created by Parliament. Uh, right. But... There's, there's effectively like almost a simple majority mechanism for anything that the Supreme Court rules to be overturned by Parliament. It would be a bit of a back and forth and it would be very difficult to achieve. It would be hugely embarrassing. But Parliament really is supreme. In the United States, it seems like the Constitution is supreme. Certainly in South Africa, the Constitution is supreme. But it's got a mechanism for amending itself. And that mechanism is clearly stated, and that mechanism is for Parliament to amend the Constitution. 
And in that sense, the people and the constitution kind of are sort of, you know, the constitution is supreme, but ultimately its power is sourced from the people. Um, the point of that is all to say that many of the many of the opponents to the postponement argued that, as 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 Michel Leroux put it, the court is being asked to pick up the pen and rewrite the constitution. Or as Jamie, um, advocate Jamie for the Western Cape uh, local government uh, MEC argued the constitutional court is being asked to ignore section 159 of the constitution to suspend section 159 of the constitution to amend section 159 of the constitution that these are right. synonymous actions and that amending the constitution ignoring the constitution or suspending the constitution when they all amount to the same thing are, are actions that only that only Parliament is allowed to perform. Now, here's the problem with the legal argument. So I haven't gotten into all of the details about it, but that basically that's the legal argument, is that there is a way to... 150, section 159 says this election has to happen by 1 November, and to give one more little bit of detail that was brought up by some of the respondents, elections have to be free, fair, regular, and safe. But only the regular bit is enshrined in the opening chapter of the Constitution, which says South Africa is one sovereign country defined on these basic principles, non-racialism, non-sexism, non-sexism, and it has one common voters' role, universal suffrage, and regular elections. In other words, it entrenches regular elections in the founding document. That's why you need a 75% majority to change this. So this is right, more deeply entrenched bit. than a right in the Bill of Rights. And then it's more unambiguously set out than anything else in section 159 where it says exactly what the deadline has to be so there's no room for linguistic interpretation so you can't read it down you can't dilute through your reading how to interpret what the deadline is the deadline is a guillotine black and white line whereas free and fair elections are contextual there's no black and white line Every free and fair election can be different to the last one. In 2016, the, the Concord found that even though the IEC was the EC was breaking the law and had been breaking the law for every election since 2003, it didn't. Even though the election was unlawful, it didn't make it un unfree and unfair because it's a contestable thing. Right. It's a contextual thing. Um, these are some of the detail, the sort of legal details of the argument. But the basic thing comes down to this. The Constitution says you have to do this by this deadline. Everything else should shift before that deadline gets shifted. You should try everything you can possibly try to protect the deadline. But if you've tried everything and it's still not working, what then? And this is what Acting Chief Justice Zondo kept coming up against. And he kind of forced Jamie to change his position for the, for the Western Cape um, local government. And this is the hardest test that sort of everyone had to face. And Gauntlet sort of summarized it by this. Imagine you're staring down the barrel of a sham election. The train is coming. is absolute certainty. As Zonda postulated, it's two days before the election. And the court has been shown that there is no way this election is going to work out. 
in that event, must the court say Parliament is obliged to figure out a remedy by amending the Constitution overnight? Or can the court not declare that this election is going to be unfree and unfair, and on the basis of that declaration say it's best not to go through with a sham election, and it's best to just wait until it can be done freely and fairly, and then do it at that point. So this is like the extreme abstract argument, and everyone spends a million years saying, Nick, I think you must mute yourself because your dogs are going Oh, sorry, my dogs are going mad. Let me squat. So this is the abstract argument that that seems to be very it's it's kind of scary to even talk about it because it's so far from the facts and the more you talk about it the more you might be fooled into thinking this is where we really are this is not where we are but as an as a legal principle the court has to consider that it's being told that it doesn't have this power it can never break the deadline and on the other hand, it's being told it can break the deadline. And so it's got to ask itself, in the most extreme situation, if it is two days before the election, and the election was taking place on the last available day before the deadline, and it was perfectly 100% clear that the election couldn't happen in a free and fair fashion, would it then have the power to declare that this will not be a free and fair election and that they should go forward on a later date? And that question is super hard. I thought that it was interesting. Michelle LaRue drew out of acting Chief Justice Zondo an interesting point, which is that insofar as the court does that, insofar as the court does anything to take over the IEC's responsibilities, if there's a subsequent challenge, the court would be party to its own case. In other words, it would have to rule against itself, which it can't really do. So that's a very good reason for it to stay out of the business of preempting. But there are more basic structural arguments for why the court shouldn't preempt. In other words, the court can say after the fact, this election was terrible, do it again. But that it should never be able to say before the fact, this election will be terrible, postpone it to another date. Because... Why is that what our constitution says? Because it's 1D only picks out regular elections. Because the regularity test is the only thing that's given a clear definition. But in principle, why is it? In principle, it's because that is the deadline is the kind of thing that you make everything else work inside of with the mechanism already there in case things don't work. And that mechanism is appealing after the fact, once the evidence is actually existent, rather than merely speculative, that only then could the court be in a position to overrule an election, which is otherwise the greatest source of authority in the country. In other words, an election is such a big deal, you can't speculate about it. You cannot prejudice the election. You cannot say that this will not be free and fair before the facts of its of its instance. So this is the kind of most hardcore argument, that the court can never do this before the fact. The, the slight step down is, look, maybe the court can never do this. Maybe it, maybe it can do it. What would really happen is, if you are properly thinking about such a um, hypothetical scenario where you're staring down the barrel of a sham election, 
is that the election's not going to happen in either way. People are not going to show up to vote. You know, if there is an earthquake that literally tears the Drakensberg in half and volcanic ash spews across South Africa so that the sun cannot be seen for 48 hours in a row, and everyone on WhatsApp is saying, guys, this election is not going to work out. The IEC guys are not showing up to the staffing offices. The ballot boxes have all been burnt. Even if you do vote, there's going to be so much fraud and corruption and invention of, of fake ballots and whatever that this thing's not going to work out. People are going to be, you know, half third of the country's hospitalized because of the volcano smearing its way through Harry Smith and Peter Maritzburg. Right. This is not a scenario in which the election is going ahead either way. You know, yeah. a thousand people are going to vote. It's going to be a nonsense. Afterwards, they're going to complain and say this was not actually a free and fair election. Can we have another one in a few months once we've managed to put ourselves back together again? If you really envisage the kind of scenario where you know two days in advance with absolute certainty that this election is not going to be free and fair, you've put yourself in such a circumstance where you are inevitably also imagining a situation where the election is just not going to happen. So that's another way of pushing back against it um, and saying the, the court just never has this power. The third way of pushing back against it and saying the court doesn't have this power is if there is such a sham on the horizon, if it's so obvious, if it's so perfectly clear, then you will be able to get parliament overnight to, to pass with a 75% majority some emergency measure. And that if you can't get parliament to pass it with a 75% majority, then you can have a state of emergency declared by the executive. And the executive can take the extreme measures that it seeks relief or breaking the constitutional deadline. And then parliament, once you have a state of emergency, parliament has oversight to play on the executive's action. So the parliament could immediately dissolve it if you had a majority to say, no, this is not justified. But if it is such an extreme circumstance, the executive could say, we're declaring a state of emergency. The Drakensberg just exploded. And parliament could say, <laughs> go ahead. And then with a simple majority, you can change anything for a while. And then the court, after the fact, would be asked to consider whether this was okay. And it would say probably that it was okay. And if it did say that it was invalid, then it would use its invalidity argument. Right. Now here, the problem with, so I think everything that I've said makes sense to you, right? It's like, right. I'm basically saying there's no mechanism for the constitutional court to rewrite the constitution. There are other things that can happen in terribly awful scenarios. Parliament can step in, the executive can step in, state of emergency, 75% majority. If it's all really that obvious and that bad, it'll be easy to get people to agree. Here's the fly in the ointment, Nick. And I don't know how many people know this. I didn't really, I'd read about this um, when I was a high school student, but I kind of never appreciated how serious this is. Section 172 of the Constitution basically says that the Constitutional Court can do anything. So it's like the Constitution is like 174 sections. And the first 170 sections say all of the things that everyone is and isn't allowed to do. And then seven, 172 says the Constitutional Court, if it has a case in its power, it must declare something invalid, constitutionally invalid, if it's 
constitutionally invalid. And it can suspend the retrospective application of that invalidity as much as it wants, and it can suspend the actual declaration of that invalidity for as long as it likes, and do anything, and issue any order that is just and equitable. So it's kind of a blank check. It's saying the, the, the relief that the IEC seeks is basically, can we kill the patient now and ask you for permission? No, can we ask you for permission now to kill the patient? And we're going to kill the patient in three months' time. And you're going to tell us that you're not allowed to kill the patient because we know that you're not allowed to kill the patient. And you know that we're not allowed to kill the patient. But can you just promise to only tell us that we're not allowed to kill the patient in four months' time after we've already killed the patient? <laughs> that is crazy, but that is what the Constitution in 172 allows. It allows the, the constitutional court to ignore basically any provision in the Constitution for as long as it likes, as long as it considers that just and equitable. In other words, as long as it applies its own discretion to find that this is a necessary thing to do. So oh. you have these structural <laughs> arguments about the rule of law, about chapter one, the founding articles, regularities there, freeness and fairness is not there. You've got arguments about how the Bill of Rights can be abrogated, how it can't be abrogated. You've got structural arguments about the expression unambiguously in 159 about the, the deadline versus the open to interpretation and, and contextual thing to do with free and fair. You've got the factual arguments about what all the other countries are doing. But underneath all of this, you've got this escape hatch for the constitutional court to say, we can do anything we like as long as we consider it to be just and equitable. And that is why this case, without exaggeration, was described by so many senior advocates. And I've watched quite a few South African court cases. I've never seen anything like this. So many silks saying, this is an existential threat. This is the most important case the Constitutional Court has ever heard because it is in a position right now to sign a blank check for every Constitutional Court application going forward into eternity for as long as this country is around if they give themselves blank check powers here. That will always be a precedent for any Chapter 9 institution, the Public Protector, the Electoral Commission, for the Police Commissioner, for the any human organ of state, the Human Rights Commission. Anyone can go before the Constitutional Court yeah. and say, look, we want to break the law. Here's something unambiguous. It says that even under a state of emergency, you can't kill people arbitrarily. It says that unambiguously. You cannot abrogate the right to life under a state of emergency. So that, we know I'm it's unambiguous, but we need to do it because the alternative is impossible. <laughs> we have to go to Alexander Township. They haven't been behaving nicely. We have to kill every 10th person like they did in ancient Rome to teach them a lesson. And we know that that's unconstitutional. And we're asking your permission to do it in the sense that you're only going to tell us it's unconstitutional after the fact and that you're going to tell us in such a way that no one gets punished. And the precedent will exist for that. And this is the argument that is brought forward by the Western Cape Provincial Council. You cannot do this. This is the kiss of death to the rule of law and democracy in this country. And this is the argument that was reiterated by proponent after proponent after proponent thereafter.
It's just the scariest precedent you can set. And on top of that, as Michelle LaRue said, it's also unprecedented. As far as our constitutional court has gone before, it has never gone so far as to say that it has authority to change the constitution, to amend the constitution at its own discretion. Its now, interpretation Gabriel. of section 172 has been more limited. And so the question stands before us, not just about whether this election is going to stay safe, but fundamentally about whether South African is going to stay a constitutional democracy or whether it's going to become a juristocracy, a, a, a government of unelected justices whose wisdom is probably greater than yours and mine in many respects, but who are the ultimate source of law. And the, the constitution goes from being a founding document to a bit of furniture that they might lean on when they choose to and they might walk past when it's when it suits them better. That's really what what the court was presented with in terms of the legal argument, the factual argument I've already addressed. They, it seems like they won't have to deal with the legal argument because the factual argument is so weak, because the factual argument is grounded in the thought that South Africa is too useless to be a country, which, although Nicholas and I have often said is true, is not as true if, as they were making look, it out. If, if Ethiopia can do it, then we can, then quite we frankly. Can. That's, if yeah. Tanzania can do it, if Ghana can do it. Right. And then right. the last thing to say now, is where the IRR stepped in. But let me answer your question first. My question my question is not so much a question as a comment. As, mm. as people in public meetings love to say, yeah. this, this is the worst thing a politician ever wants to hear, is you in some really boring meeting where you're discussing someone's burst pipe and you say at the end of a presentation that just explained a whole bunch of stuff guys uh any questions and someone stands up and says look it's more of a comment really <laughs> and they start with a 10 minute diatribe so here's my comment i'm just a simple randberg podcaster but any constitutional court decision that grants extraordinarily more power to the human rights commission is I think possibly, I'm, I'm trying to imagine something that is worse in my nightmares. And yeah, no, there's not that many <laughs> things that I can think of because no, no, the <laughs> that's HRC, horrifying. The, the, I've seen the HRC ask an equality court for, for the right to go into people's bathrooms to see what they're doodling while they make a poo. Yes. They have literally said that. We need we want to see what pictures in the toilet. The HRC is one of the most authoritarian, intrusive, yeah. nasty organizations of this country. And if it's able to just go before the constitutional court and say, guys, 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 guys. We know that the constitution says this, but really we should be driving the barbarians into the sea or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> whatever and this they'll argue. Yeah. No, it's no bueno. <laughs> Oof. Hmm. Well, uh, so, 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 so this, so the, so the first eight hours of the day kind of set the set the argument up at stakes that are even higher than 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 I thought they possibly could be. I'd gone in thinking, you know, a deadline's really important, but the court must have <laughs> the power in a in an in an ultimately terrible situation to to grant the kind of relief that's being sought. You know, to, if it's two days before the election and it's, and it's not going to work, to say, okay, do it two days after the deadline. 
I thought that must be right. I, I think the court has given a lot of reason to think that if you're in such a situation, if it is that extreme, then the mechanisms that apply in a normal case also apply there and apply even better there. And those mechanisms are parliamentary intervention and executive intervention. And insofar as you can see at a long way in the future, parliamentary intervention is very easy. To the last detail about that is that to change the constitution, you need at least 30 days according to an explicit provision in the constitution. I think it's 30 days. It could be 26 days, something like that, for public comment. It's a very short period. So it's, it's much shorter than the period between now and the election. So parliament could completely conceivably, according to what it's already been contemplated in the constitution, change the constitution. Um, oh, and by the way, this is the other point that Gauntlet made about how the IEC changed. It's tack from what it originally said to what it later said. Like it originally said, it's absolutely impossible. And then it was asked a bunch of questions and had to admit, no, it's only relatively impossible, which is just like a meaningless phrase. It also started out by saying the reason it didn't go to parliament is that it counted the votes. It did the calculation and saw that it would never get the majority it needs to change the constitution. So instead it went to the Congress. <laughs> But that's illegal. You have to, <laughs> you're not allowed to. We won't win, so we'll change the rules. <laughs> I mean, the the whole point of the IEC is that it is the servant of the parliament. Parliament is the oversight board committee. That is the thing that it reports back to. And this gets back to my original complaint about this whole thing. Before the proclamation, I was the first guy to say, the IEC did not follow proper procedure in the Moseneke report, the so-called Moseneke report. That's why I'm the only guy still calling it the so-called Moseneke report. It was irregular because it, in terms of the terms of reference for the construction of the report, made Moseneke the functionary of the IEC, so that it was an actual IEC report. But they phrased it not as an IEC report to someone. They rephrase it as a Moseneke report to the IEC. But there's nothing in the terms of reference that set it up that way. So it had to be an IEC report. But then because they said it was to the IEC, it's an IEC report to the IEC. Who's it really to? In terms of the, the law, Section 14.4 of the Electoral Act, I think it is, the IEC is supposed to report to Parliament. Well, so they didn't do me, that. And why didn't they do even, that? They didn't do that because Parliament said it was because they expected that Parliament's not going to work. Then they were probed on that and they couldn't hold on to that line. So then they changed their line to say, no, 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 we didn't want to go to Parliament because we thought if you amend the Constitution with a three quarters majority, that will set a very bad precedent. You mean that we should use the system as intended? <laughs> Right. Okay. No, they that's literally fine. said that, Nick. They, that is so, literally their argument to the court. And the scary thing is, it might work. We don't know. Is it going to work or not? We don't know. So, so right let's now, assume whether we're going to wake up with a democracy <coughs> or rule by twelve old men. Well, look, it's we're not we're not in a great position either way, and I'll tell you why. Because let's say the court does the right thing, right? It rules exactly as we're hoping that it'll rule. And it saves the democracy in, in, in the technical sense. How could we ever trust the IEC again, or the, the EC, as you insist on calling it, again? Because 
you know, it's it's obviously not a a, a uh, benevolent actor. And considering what such a, what an important role it provides, it plays in the democratic system. This is a serious problem. I mean, at some point, we're going to have to ask the question: Can the, uh, the 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 electoral commission be trusted to run our elections fairly? And I know that there are people on the opposition benches who, for a while, have been muttering about that. But after this, it seems clear that that question is far more unavoidable than it's ever been. Right, and and one goes back to the polling um, from the Institute of Justice and Reconciliation, or whatever it was, uh, which found that the electoral commission's uh, trust levels were 70% thereabouts in 2010 and by 2018 had come down to 30%, 30-something percent. So the IC has already been losing trust uh, man on the street level for a long time. And a decision against this, against it here, would erode the trust further because people would say, you know, why the hell were you trying in the first place? Ghana could have Order. an election. The Concord yeah. is... Yeah, exactly. And and there's no mechanism. There's no mechanism for inventing a new electoral commission. This is not like McDonald's versus Burger King. Neither's working out. So you go buy some steers. The electoral commission <laughs> yeah, this is, is the only this is the one thing we have. Powered. Yes, <laughs> but 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 Nick, this is. I mean, it is like we. I was talking with um, John Endres, the CEO elect, hmm. about. State capture 2.0, and it's it's a bit difficult. There are different ways of thinking about state capture 2.0, but the point is this: that people have made accommodations with the fact that the the, the tax collector was profoundly corrupted, and the effect of that, I think, has I mean, has demonstrably been lower tax morale, more people hiding their money. We had some of the highest tax morality in the world. And after the corruption of SARS, Tom Moyani days, uh, that went down the toilet. I remember the Scorpions. When I was in high school, I said to my mom, she said to me, you know, what's your plan for your life? Do you want to live in South Africa or do you want to leave? And I said, no, I totally want to live in South Africa. I love South Africa. Um, if the Scorpions get disbanded, then I'm going to make a plan to be able to leave then I'm going to make sure that I can get out of this country because then I don't trust this country anymore. And I did. Um, that was my red line. I think everyone has a kind of um, a state institution that has collapsed or that will collapse uh, or that could collapse, right, theoretically. That is their red line. Right. And that is really, I think, you, I think your point, what I'm getting from, here's what I think is the sad truth. Either the Concord breaks the constitution in which case capture has penetrated the constitutional court that's the institution that's been broken they are willing to write themselves a blank check to do whatever they please without yeah. a factual basis it's not inevitable there's medical evidence presented to Mosineke that we can do this thing every other country that's tried has done it successfully on the evidence given to the commission um, or at least there's no evidence against that. L lots of countries have tried. Some have failed, but it, it's not clear why. It might just be because they didn't put in the proper protocols. In that circumstance, if the Concord breaks, I think that it's the kiss of death. I, I don't think that we come back from that um, without going through full failed state status. 
right. proper Zimbabwe, Venezuela, um, uh, kind of shock and horror. Joburg becomes like Tehran, you know, an interesting cultural spot that still has cool cafes and interesting cinema. Um, but really, it's really grim. It's very ugly. It's very toxic. It influences the region very badly. And uh, and the middle class is destroyed. Lots of people die, even more than are currently dying. So that's what happens if the Concorde breaks. If, 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 if the Concorde holds and it breaks the last shred of credibility that the Electoral Commission has, then we're in an end game, right? Where if the ANC keeps its 50% majority in the municipal elections, if it even grows, and if it keeps its 50% majority in national elections in 2024, then you can expect as much reform coming out of Ramaphosa as you've already had, which is very little. I don't see him stepping in and firing the IEC's board insofar as he has the power to do so. Can no, why would he? Um, and so you just have a, an incredible electoral commission that still keeps running our elections. And that I think one of the scary things is once institutions like that have lost their hypocrisy is kind of nice, right? Even if even if someone's really terrible, if they're trying to pretend that they're useful, then it's still like a last line of defense. There's still some things that they can't do. Once that goes away, once it's clear that the IEC, that the EC is incredible, but that it's not being reformed, it'll be easier for it to really rig elections. Yeah. And so you get this end game of failed state status because the, the ANC just can't lose because right. the electoral commission's in its pockets and the constitutional court has the power to say, don't do that, but it doesn't have the power to fundamentally reform it. So that's also, if there's full state capture in the electoral commission, we, it, we hit a kind of end game of full failed state status. If the Concord suffers full state capture, same problem. The only way this thing works out is if the Concord holds and there is real electoral punishment against the powers that be, and that, in turn, that classic democratic mechanism is used over time to secure the credibility of the Electoral Commission. So all of the ducks kind of have to line up. And this is what happens when you... When, you, when you've gone as far down the road to hell as we have, is that to get back out, you, you, everything kind of has to work. But yeah. I think that's exactly the scenario that's put us in this position in the first place. It's exactly the, 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 the fact that if the election has to happen now, it's so likely to produce serious punishment against the ANC, that it's so likely to produce a nationwide drop below 50%, which would be psychologically devastating. Um, I think that's exactly why such extraordinary measures are being taken on the ANC's part to do this thing. And I, you know, I don't know. It's it's so weird to think three couple of years back when we started this podcast, I was still saying how much I was a childhood lover of the ANC, and like <laughs> I really do still see reformers in the ANC, and it can still work out. Th this year, 
the the madness after the lockdown, the fact that there's been no parliamentary oversight over the command council a year and four months later, the fact that there's no attempted parliamentary oversight coming from the ANC um, in this electoral commission matter, there's no ANC figures standing up to say, you should have brought this to parliament. We would have solved the problem. That's exactly what the constitution requires. The fact that there's a push to ban guns in, in the most mad way that even I as like a gun phobe just can't stand by. There's there's the fact that there's this new push to, we've given up prescribed assets now, everyone must pay 10% to a newly invented fund. At least there's a little bit of pushback from the anti coming there. So it's not completely kaput, but it is incapable of cleaning itself um, to the degree that's necessary to save those institutions that matter that have not yet suffered state capture from suffering state capture, and the and the weird thing is when you know when the when this when the police when that part of the police force that's supposed to investigate the police and politicians gets captured, you think, wow, that's the last thing to go. Then the high courts of various provinces get captured, and you're like, no, 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 that's the last thing to go. It can't get worse. <laughs> When the tax collector gets captured, you're like, no, that's terrible. The secret service, every the spy intelligence service, that gets captured. You think, no, it cannot get more essential. The human rights council, the public protector, they get captured. You think, no, it can't get what more essential. What is it that, uh, that, that, that Jedi Master... Box. Yeah. What is it that Jedi Master Qui-Gon Jinn says in uh, Star Wars? There's always a bigger fish. Yeah. There's always a greater constitutional crisis. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're so, North Korea. Yeah, <laughs> yeah is North a Korea floor. is about about the the floor, yeah. <laughs> but that even is the floor. like not, not even not even some place like DRC, South Sudan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, those places aren't even North Korea. They no. look at North Korea and say, "Wow, those guys wow. suck." Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We've got cabbage and occasionally potatoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Our people have like some rights sometimes, occasionally on a good day. North yeah, Korea, because they're like, right, absence of, what are those? At least, <laughs> at least there's an absence of government, right? Right. There, right. There's a kind of freedom in anarchy. Anarchy, it turns out not to be the worst. There's something even worse. So we are, we're, we're far from the bottom, but we, but, but this is, anyway, this is a very exciting time. Here's, here's the strange denouement is that the Institute of Race Relations Intervention. On, on the one hand, is a deflation of these terribly high stakes. Because what the IRR has said is, look, we agree with those who oppose the postponement of the election. We don't think you have this power. But if you think you do have this power as the court to, to break the constitution and create a deadline extension, we would like you to do it piece by piece. In other words, there's nine provinces and the IEC is already doing it province by province. That's how they advertise it. That's how they administer it. In terms of the way the votes actually get counted, it's district by district, ward by ward. It's very, very low level. There's like four and a half thousand elections that are happening and they just usually happen on one day. But in previous occasions, 1995, 96, the municipal elections were split by province. The Western Cape and another one happened like months later because they couldn't get certain aspects working in time. Um, and so let's do something like that here. Uh, let's say 
that if Gauteng is ready to go, let it go. And mean, if Mpumalanga is only ready to go later. I mean, it, it takes seriously that whole thing about uh, uh, doing everything in your power to make sure the election goes ahead. Basically do that. Wherever you can. Don't break. Right. Wherever you can, stick to the deadline. And insofar as you can, stick yeah. to the deadline. Limit, limit and, the bleeding. And so, and so what that does is it kind of deflates these, these huge grand scale um, stakes, this dilemma, and, and breaks it into pieces. And mm. our, our representative, Mark Oppenheimer, is a wonderful chap, uh, said, you know, he quoted Desmond Tutu to start out with very cleverly. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Uh, and the other one was like the IEC is trying to kill nine birds with one stone. It's trying to get all provinces, all nine provinces lined up in a trough at the same time. And then it can do only if it's level one everywhere can it do it. That's Big not stone. any good. Let's give it more stones. And then it's got a better chance of, of getting all nine birds. But I think the most important aspect, so this seems deflationary. And, and I could imagine that some of our allies might have looked at us and thought, well, you guys are a little bit useless because you more than anyone are kind of making concessions that the IEC might be right, that it can't hold the election within the deadline, and you're giving it the way out that it couldn't think of. So why is that a fair description of what's going on? To an extent. Here's why it's not really fair. What we're actually doing is saying we think those other arguments for why you can't break the deadline are right on the facts and on the law. You don't have the power. And even if you did have the power, it wouldn't be justified in this instance. We're not going against those guys. We are actually the last line of defense. We're saying if you get through everyone else, you still have to get through us. You still have to tell us why the Western Cape, which says it can run this election, on time, why it should not be allowed to do that. You still have to tell us why Gauteng, which has got 10% of the daily cases now that it did two months, a month ago, why it can't have its election now. We are the last line of defense. And you know what we come with? We come with such a fundamental, practical meat and potatoes kind of thing. Made me love the IRR. We are just so irritating to our opponents. Can you imagine our terrible opponents they've heard it all before that the abstract arguments about the constitution and how much it matters and the humiliating things about okay ghana can do it why can't we do it and they've made their peace with all of that their own argument is that this country is so cuck it can't even vote and here the irr comes and says but what about cape town what about <laughs> stellenbosch what about emerentia what about Lanseria. What about this district and that district? What about this province called Gauteng? Tell us the whole country is too cuck to vote. You can't do it. You can only tell us that some place is too cuck to vote. And then you know what? You can delay the election there or rather have the election and if someone complains that it wasn't free and fair, do it again over there. Concentrate the crap. Concentrate the good. And this is, I feel like, I feel like it's such an archetypal IRR move. It's, it's always been the IRR's mission to tell the world that this country is better than its politicians make it out to be. And it's always had to juggle this problem of the country actually is pretty crap. There actually were a <laughs> lot of racists, 
a lot of black people, a lot of white people, a lot of colored people, a lot of Indian people who hated each other because of how they looked. That was true. And it would have been difficult at any point to try and achieve a non-racial constitutional democracy. But we argued for it pretty much the whole way through for 90 years by pointing to, by doing exactly what we're doing now, saying, let's break it into pieces. Can't this piece work? Can't this step forward be taken? Can't we own some victory? And this is what we do with racism is not the problem. Not to say it's not the problem everywhere, to say here's a part of the world where it's not the problem. This is what we're doing with our, our, our economic policies, is to say these here are the places where it's working. How do we make more of it like that? This is kind of the philosophy of, of the IRR under France's leadership, as I experienced it from my first interview. He was like, if you think someone's life is going well, if you think the background conditions are right and the actual material conditions are good, we want you to argue that other people should be allowed to live that way too, rather than argue from a position of privilege that no one should really be allowed privilege, that you should cut down all the tall poppies, cut up the pie, and spread it around. No, you should be saying, if I can do this, other people should be allowed to do it as well. Build on success rather than hold the whole country back because some part of the country is too crap to get its act together. So that seems to be like our economic philosophy, our racial philosophy, build on those non-racial relationships that really work. And now it's gotten a beautiful distillation in this extremely important constitutional argument. And I'm flatly proud to be a small part of this team and, and a cog in the wheel and uh, think that what we have done is, is made it really impossible for, for the election to be properly stolen. Because the best that the Concord can do from the IEC's perspective, from the EC's perspective, is to delay the election some places and have those places that are capable and courageous have their elections first, demonstrate that it can be done clearly, and that'll make it even harder for the incumbent to hold on to their power thereafter. It'll make it much worse for them electorally. So... I think I think we've done a brilliant thing uh, to serve the country, and I'm bragging, and I'm waffling on, and I've hijacked what should have been a nice week to talk about a terrible thing in Afghanistan. Um, <laughs> Look, I'm I'm frankly quite pleased because that that whole that situation gets me down. You know, I'm uh, we're still processing. I think we're both still processing. Yeah, as 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 I've said before, you know, I'm I I do take unpopular and hawkish opinions when it comes to foreign policy, especially US foreign policy. And um, seeing something like happen in Afghanistan, I mean, it really does affect me because I think I, you know, it, you know you, we always talk about esteem teams. Um, I like to imagine that my esteem team is this thing that I have in my mind. I don't know if it really exists in the real world, but uh, this, this old concept of the free world. Mm. I like and, that. Uh, I, I, you know, I do kind of almost take it personally um, mm. when people very far away from me lose their freedoms in such a horrific manner. Mm. And, yeah, I hope something good comes out of that. Um, and that those, those dudes, the, the deputy president of Afghanistan is organizing that resistance. I hope that he wins because nothing good can come from this. She's like, it's going to be a long battle.
Long. Let's talk more about it next week, I think. Yeah. Um, but we are we are a bit yeah. over time, so let us call it there. Uh, anything to recommend? I recommend that you check out the IRR's contribution to the Constitutional Court through Mark Oppenheimer. We will be putting that YouTube extract up on our website and on the Daily Friend. Uh, I think it's – if you listen to this podcast, you should just – it's, it's it's he kind of reads it out he's not very um uh charismatic in his presentation like jeremy gordlet is kind of the cheekiest just to give you a flavor of of the theatricality that some of the chaps resort to he starts his presentation speaking but you can't hear anything and then the justices say oh mr gordlet your, your mic has been muted so then he unmutes himself he says i'm very very sorry i'm very sorry and then halfway through, he says in in such a smooth fashion that I just don't believe it is an accident. He says, "You know, we all face these troubles. Uh, you know, even us in the in the court, you guys, we all. Sometimes the advocates they forget to unmute themselves, and it's hard to get your juniors to give you your papers and have the proper consultations. But where there's a will, there's a way. We make it work. Uh, and we got a nice smile." Out of all of the justices because they all sympathize with how difficult it is to do your job properly in the time of the plague and they all like that they're still trying and damn sure. the icy for not still trying so the theatricality is interesting but mark doesn't do it but mark just gives us distilled and really interesting Crisp. Um, yeah he's, he's always very good at explaining a things. great delivery and he gets them to smile with the with the nine birds and one stone and it's uh yeah that's I'm super I'm super proud of of what the IRR's done there. So that's my recommendation. As uh, as Bane says in the Dark Knight Rises, the Batman movie, theatricality and deception are powerful tools. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to recommend a former New York Times writer who was driven out for being too pro-Israel, uh, Barry Weiss. She now she's doing the thing that all the cool kids are doing. She's got a Substack, which is a website yeah. where you can like post stuff. Go check out her Substack. She's got basically an opinion piece there from, uh, I think it's called "Why We Failed the American Exit from Afghanistan," and she has inputs from H.R. McMaster, Nikki Haley, Justin Amash, Elliot Ackerman, Thomas Jocelyn, Eli Lake, and Jacob Segel. Now, mm -hmm. I think that some of those uh, pieces are a bit uh, make really stupid arguments, but they're all good to read. And um, you can come out, come out with more sense of what just happened in Afghanistan there. Uh, but yeah, we'll talk more about that I think next week. Anyway, um, in times such as these, I think it's more important than ever that you uh, keep the flag of liberty flying.